Hi there, and thank you for joining Pipettes and Politics. This is uh, Ben Corb, the Public Affairs Director for the American Society for Biochemistry and Molecular Biology. And as always, I'm joined by Andre Porter. Hey, how are you doing? And Daniel Pham. Hey, everyone. We are very excited to be here this week where we will be talking about a variety of issues. We'll uh, be giving an update on the appropriations process and where things are right now for funding the government for fiscal year 2019. We're also going to talk uh, a little bit about um, the August is for Advocacy campaign that ASBMB is going to be organizing, and we're going to discuss the National Academy's recent report on revitalizing uh, graduate STEM education. We're going to be doing that after the break, going into a little bit of a deep dive about what they said. Both Andre and Daniel were at their rollout earlier this week, so um, that's where things are right now. So. The opening, I think, to start off with is we'd like to talk about the appropriations process and where things are. Um, in our last podcast, we talked about the National Science Foundation and the Department of Energy's Office of Science, and the, those both exist in the Commerce Science Justice. The NSF is in CJS. The Office of the Department of Energy's Office of Award of Science, excuse me, is in Energy and Water Bills. Right. Thank you for the correction. Yeah. So um, both of we we talked a little bit about the appropriations specifically specifically for the National Science Foundation and what's going on there. We are still waiting to hear numbers for the National Institutes of Health for draft versions of the Labor, Health, and Human Services appropriations bills out of either the House or the Senate. So we don't have a lot of details. However, we do have some nuggets of information that we can provide. Recently, the uh, 302B allocations were released publicly. Um, for people who are not budget wonks, a 302B allocation is the sizes of the budget that each appropriation bill has the opportunity to have. So if you think of the federal budget as a slice as a pie, the 302B allocation is how big your slice of the pie is. And there are 12 slices, um, agriculture, the commerce, justice, science, defense, energy and water, um, all the way through all of the different agencies in the federal government. Um, the 302B allocation for labor HHS for fiscal year 19, there are two. Um, in the House, the number is the same as it was last year. So the, the Labor, Health and Human Services Appropriations Committee in the House has the same amount of money to play with this year as they did last year. In the Senate, we see about a $2 billion increase in their allocation. So what we can read from that is, um, if we're focusing specifically on NIH appropriations right now, it would be hard to imagine a way in which the House can increase the NIH's budget drastically without making massive cuts to other programs within that labor, health, and human services bill. Um, doesn't mean that won't happen. It's very possible that that will happen, but that's something that we need to consider. Uh, in the Senate, there is an, it, there's additional money than what we, they had last year, so there is the possibility to increase the NIH's budget and that not come at the expense of other public health programs or housing programs um, or other programs, the kind of social safety net programs that are funded out of uh, the labor HHS bill. So um, we're waiting to hear kind of how things go. We are actually, um, earlier this week, we submitted testimony to uh, the Senate Appropriations Committee on behalf of ASBMB regarding the NIH budget and the need to see a continued path of increases in funding that we've been um, the lucky beneficiaries of over time. But that's something that we're watching and wanted to keep an eye out on. Um, let's get out of Congress for a second and talk agencies. Guys, is there any news or anything that's new that's happening within the agencies right now? 
So <clears throat> the NIGMS, the National Institute for General Medical Sciences, released the RFI this week, or last week, excuse me, um, soliciting the community for feedback on strategies for how to enhance postdoctoral career transitions to promote faculty diversity. Um, that was, again, released last week. They have they have a 60-day open period, and um, the due date is for July 20th. Okay. And also the National Science Foundation put out their draft proposal and award guide. Um, it's open for comment, so if you see anything as a community member and you feel like it's confusing or you feel like it should include more information, that's open as well. I believe that closes at the end of July also. And the links to those uh, RFIs will be available on the blog that accompanies this podcast. So if you're interested, submit there. Um, certainly, ASVMB will be providing our comments, uh, particularly to the NIGMS RFI and diversity, um, and, and possibly to the National Science Foundation one. And if we do, you'll see those posted on our website as well. Um, the other topic that we wanted to talk about now is... Um, ASBMB's Summer Advocacy Program, which is our August is for Advocacy Program. Um, Daniel, do you want to talk a little bit about what that is and what we'll be doing? Sure. So August is for Advocacy is similar to our Hill Day event, um, except we are encouraging uh, scientists to meet with their members of Congress when they're back at home for August recess. So if you're interested in um, meeting with and talking about the importance of science research with your members of Congress on there at home, just um, shoot us an email. Um, we'll also have um, a page set up um, with uh, directions of how to do this. We'll also have a webinar out um, in June with uh, explicit instructions of how to get involved. And you know, we're really hoping to get 50 or so uh, meetings throughout August. So um, we hope to see you out there. We're actually hoping to get more than 50. We'd like to get one meeting from every state, which would give us the minimum At of 50. At least 50. But we're looking to have um, more than that. And this is a program that we started about five years ago. We started it as the um, 100 meeting challenge, which in the first year we had about 80 or 90 or so meetings. And in the second year we accomplished our challenge and had over 150 meetings during the month of August in which scientists could meet with their elected representatives during the recess period, talk about the things that are going on, the science is happening in their own backyard, organize colleagues to go on these meetings as well. Um, at ASBB, we're really proud of the program that we put together. We make it as easy as possible for you to get involved. Um, that we train people on how to talk to and how to conduct the meeting. We will schedule meetings for you. We will provide you with meeting materials and data points and talking points. Um, hell, if you want us to go there and hold your hand, we will join you for your meeting. Um, but it really is an exciting opportunity to get involved locally, to not have to jump on an airplane or a train or take a cross-country bus to take, participate in a meeting, but rather drive 30 minutes or 45 minutes to your local congressional office. So it's, it's an exciting opportunity there, and we're hoping lots of people are willing to get involved. Now, we are talking about this a little bit before uh, ASBB announces it or puts out the emails and has the sign-up pages ready. So um, I would keep an eye on our blog, which is uh, 
policy.asbnb.org for the sign up page so you can see um, you can sign up to let us know that you're interested and then you'll be notified for when we're doing uh, the trainings that we'll do um, and then you know we'll know that you're interested in doing it so that we can begin scheduling your meeting and then the meetings will happen in uh, August and early September so uh, June will be our prep and training period July will be our scheduling the meetings period um, and organizing ourselves in August will be the actual executing of the meetings and so we're really very excited about it um, and we're hoping that it's a successful program so it sounds like you want us to do more than 150 I feel like this is a challenge I feel like Daniel doesn't have enough to do this summer. And Daniel <laughs> All right, would guys, love, come on. I, I'm just waiting for your email. So I think that Daniel would love to schedule as many meetings as possible. So um, we will be doing um, more information for that will be available on the blog, on social media, plenty of opportunities to sign up, and we hope that we will see you there. Uh, we're going to take a break. After the break, we're going to be sitting down and talking about the National Academies report on revitalizing graduate STEM education programs. And at the end, we'll give you guys an update on AESBNB's ad advocacy training program, the ATP program, which is getting started um, today, the day that we're publishing this. So we're excited for that. So thank you for joining us and sticking around. This is Pipettes and Politics, and we'll be right back. Like this, but want more? Why not visit the ASBMB Policy Blog, where you'll see news and analysis on all things Washington. Visit www.policy.asbmb.org. Welcome back to Pipe Bets and Politics. As always, you have been Sandra Porter, Daniel Pham. Uh, and now we wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive discussion on the National Academy's report on revitalizing graduate STEM education. I keep looking at Andre to make sure I'm saying it right. right. You just missed one part, but you're 21st century. Yes, there <laughs> the 21st century. Yeah, okay, so you guys were both at the rollout for this earlier this week. Right. So tell our listeners what, uh, what we missed by not being there such amazing talks about workforce development. Um, so this is a report that started, they started com collecting information in 2016. This kind of came to a head this year, was driven by NSF as well as other funding. But the idea is that this report was is exploring how the system of supporting and training graduate students can be changed and better to better serve the students that it should be serving. Um, they outline a list of recommendations. It's, it's kind of a brief report. It's not super long. It's not as long as some of their previous ones. But the idea is that they're trying to impact the community, trying to force or encourage change both at the federal level, at institutions, um, across all stakeholders on how they're supporting graduate students at various levels. Um, that's kind of the brief synopsis of what the report is about. And Dale, you might have anything to add. Yeah, so I think one 
big section of how they started the report was to describe what an ideal graduate STEM education was, right. and I thought that was a really good way to kind of paint the picture. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, they included um, increased transparency so that grad students can select programs um, with a better idea of what they're getting themselves into. Um, they're developing, they've developed this set of core competencies that they want both master's students and PhDs to meet um, once they finish the program. Um, so this ideal graduate student um, system would, would allow them to accomplish this. Um, then they will also want um, grad students to encounter a variety of points of view, um, be comfortable um, working in diverse settings, um, so it, it, it really was able to set a good picture um, before setting the actual recommendations. Right. Now, you both, Andre, master's degree? Yep. Daniel, PhD? Yeah. So having gone, having been graduate students in the STEM, you know, STEM graduate students, um, were there any either glaring omissions that you found from the report that, you know, things that you noticed during your education that you think should be fixed, or really good ideas or pr prescribed changes that you would that would have maybe positively changed your experience as a student? Yeah, um, so to list some of the recommendations that I thought was really key was um, to increase support for mental health. Again, that's something that not many institutions have done. Um, I know at Hopkins, they, they had a really good support system and um, encouraging uh, career exploration and prep for grad students to um, look at other options beyond academia, um, and I thought those two were pretty important, especially the career options one. I didn't really have that much in the start of my graduate career and wish I could have done that earlier. Uh, one thing I think they um, omitted was um, graduate student pay, and I think you know when we're talking about um, you know mental health and just the quality of graduate student um, experience, I think that's a really, important topic to touch on because you know it really depends on what institution you're at and what type of STEM graduate program you're in will determine how much pay you get or don't get um, and kind of where you're located so you know the question is how do we kind of um, make that more equitable and you know because it's a little confusing because as grad students you are a student for the first year or two and then you become an employee almost like you you're, you're a worker for the for the duration of your PhD or your master's, yeah, and that varies from institution to institution. I <clears throat> my first semester I taught labs in microbiology. It wasn't like this lead time. It was like, nope, you have to pay for this education because that's for STEM. A lot of STEM graduate programs justify support by saying you're an RA or you're, you're a TA. That's what I had to do off um, immediately. Um, I think. The report is not the best report in the world. I mean, that's you can say that about any report. I think it, um, it it should be highlighted that they really pulled out the importance of master students, and they mentioned how master students are the lar are one of the larger portions of the STEM workforce. And I sit in these meetings, I go to these reports, press releases all the time. That's always omitted the the importance of the master student. I thought that was a great. Um, thing to kind of hammer home. And that's sort of like, sorry to interrupt you, yeah. but the um, the National Academy's report a couple of weeks ago that came out on the future of the biomedical workforce that put an emphasis on the staff scientist, which right. is kind of a, a role that hasn't been 
given a lot of attention or had a lot of focus in it. So it's it's you know not exactly the same, but they're comparable in the fact that you know the the national academies as they look at these issues, looking at the twenty first century, is recognizing um, there are spaces that there are new areas that can be more fertile for kind of the future of science. Right, and, it's, and they, one of the things they wanted to kind of emphasize was that PhDs are important, masters are important, and we need to, or the community, stakeholders need to do a better job of explaining why these degrees and why at different levels they are important. And if you're a student or your employer, what's the benefit of a master's versus a PhD and vice versa? Because there are, as Daniel mentioned, the core competencies that they outline there are, there are similarities and there are also very differences, of course, because the length, but also the skills that you gain with the doctorate as opposed to what you gain with the master's. Um, so, yeah, those are the things that pulled out. The master's student thing really uh, was highlighted. They talked a lot about diversity and inclusion, and um, they mentioned how diversity or a program that is not diverse is not excellent, and that without a diverse amount of or a diverse a set of experiences contributing to the scientific enterprise contributing to how these programs are better serving students then you can't really get to the optimal program and how if you're creating a program with a target of of, of reaching a particular group then you need to have that group at the table you can't just mandate stuff and not have those people involved in that discussion I thought that was also a very poignant point because uh, a lot of diversity conversations are very um, monolithic in the people who are having those conversations. Uh, one thing I would say that they could have included, but maybe for lack of space or just the scope, is um, the reporting of scientific misconduct um, against both, both like um, scientific misconduct and sexual misconduct, which they will probably they'll probably cover um, in their June 12th release. But um, in terms of just um, talking about the power dynamics that exist between grad students and their um, higher ups, and how one n- navigates the space where you notice, um, you know, uh, misconduct again, either sexual or, or scientific, um, with the people that are your bosses. So how how would one kind of navigate that? And that really does speak to the mental health aspect of. Um, the experience and the power of the student it, they also talked about voting with your feet i'm not a big fan of voting with your feet because the idea of voting with your feet is that everybody has the ability to vote right well and just to, i mean so really what they're talking about is is you know if you had six choices right you know you had a a, a, a diversity of choices for where to go and get your graduate degree or your phd um, if you're unhappy in a circumstance or an environment, you can go to another one, right? You have an art. But uh, as Kelly, you were talking off air, um, not everyone has that opportunity. Not everyone got a variety of options. Some people just got into one school. Right. And so what does that person do? What is that person? So yeah, it's, it's, it's the point of it not being only student-driven, but also from the top down. Like the faculty should be changing the culture as a whole. They say culture a lot. And I have an old colleague who was a biological anthropology uh major and he's like I hate when they use culture because it's not that's not culture but it's a point that Way to nerd the it. whole system needs to yeah it's yeah the whole system needs to be changed mm-hmm. um the academy report is a report and it is not a regulatory document so it's not like they're forcing it or they can force it but um there was a mention of how the system needs to change it was also which I appreciated a good emphasis on the federal government's role 
in these things. So when we're talking about um, explaining or having institutions have data readily available for career outcomes for their graduate students or um, how much a API is supporting students. They talked about maybe changing the requirements for grants where it's not just publication driven, but it's also how many students were supported and um, those students moved on and had adequate training. So they had a lot of some novel novel ideas, but most of these things have, been, have come up before, but they kind of outline it in, I think, a really digestible way where anybody can kind of lap it up. And Yeah, and it's also important to note that it's not, this isn't kind of biomedical or biological right. focus. This is STEM, STEM across right. all fields, right? Correct. And so um, not all fields of science are as PhD heavy, maybe, right. as the life sciences have right. a tendency right. to be. Is that fair? That's true. So yeah. the, when they talked about the master's students being a larger portion of the STEM enterprise, they also mentioned that, you know, that varies with biology being more PhD focused generally, et cetera, and then engineering maybe more master's focused or maybe not. So, right. yeah. Great. Yeah. Any other major takeaways? Yeah, and so um, the report also did a good job in um, outlining exactly what the different stakeholders um, should do. Um, so they had um, recommendations for universities, for um, departmental programs, um, also for professional societies like ASBMB. And um, in reading at least the professional societies' recommendations, um, luckily it seems that ASBMB has been doing um, a good job in... in, in meeting a lot of these recommendations, such as you know, designing and providing professional and career development resources, um, establishing programs to help grad students make career transitions, um, and evaluating outcomes for increased diversity. So I think, you know, a lot, there's a lot to be done. Right. I think there's a lot people are doing, and I think this is a, a good start to kind of coalesce all of these different recommendations. To get everybody on the same page. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good. Um, Agree with us, don't agree with us, tweet at us, let us know kind of what your thoughts were. There's a link to the report on the blog that associates this, uh, that's associated with this podcast. Let us know your thoughts. Let us know where you thought the National Academies either hit the nail on the head or whether where they completely missed the target and, and kind of uh, missed an opportunity to really have an influence on things. Um, use the hashtag pipettes and politics. Um, thanks for that, Andre and Daniel, for being there and for covering that. And we're going to take a break, and when we get back, we'll give an update on ASBNB's ATP program. As always, this is Pipettes and Politics, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Pipettes and Politics. In our kind of closing wrap-up segment, we want to talk a little bit about ASBNB's ATP, or Advocacy Training Program, that we are launching um, our kind of inaugural class with. Daniel, do you want to give us an update, uh, a little bit of information about the people that are selected and participating? Yeah, we're really excited to have selected our 10 delegates, the inaugural class, um, a very strong class from um, hails from all over the country. So we have people from Cal- uh, California, Colorado, Washington, um, to Texas, uh, Kentucky, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and also Puerto Rico. Um, very excited to work with all of them. Um, you know, these people um, have had some great experiences so far, uh, 
before. So they've been involved in the March for Science you know, with uh, 500 women scientists, have worked with state legislators before, um, also ASVMB student chapters. So I'm really looking forward to seeing what this group can do. So our first class has just finished today, uh, and this will go on until December. So uh, we'll keep you updated. Great. And so, um, you know, we have invited speakers. So a lot of this is, look, we do training for Hill Days and for how to do the August is for advocacy things. We do that. This is a deeper dive into all of the aspects of what advocacy is. And so some of the people that our participants will be talking to, um, the, you know, the president of ASBNB and the chair of the Public Affairs Advisory Committee, um, that's Natalie Ahn and Matt Gentry, respectively, they'll be joining us. Um, we have a, a, a health lobbyist, um, Andrew Kessler, who focused on, focuses on addiction and addiction issues and addiction policy, who's going to talk about how he's been able to message um, the opioid crisis and work with the administration to see policies enacted that are helpful for the community that he represents. Um, we're going to have a state uh, representative, Representative J.P. Straczynski from Connecticut is going to join us and talk about kind of how state advocacy differ differs from federal advocacy and also kind of what it's like to be on the other side of the desk when we're doing advocacy. We have invitations to other people, experts in the field who are going to be joining us. So it's more than just kind of the usual 45-minute webinar um, and some deeper dives with homework assignments and tasks. And so we're really excited about it and we hope that it's going to make for a uh, a strong network of really well-trained advocates um, and so thank you for the hard work that you're doing for this Daniel and um, and for the people that applied uh, we'll have other opportunities if, if you weren't selected hopefully this inaugural class is the first of many many classes that we'll be doing um, that is it for us for this week um, or for these two weeks I want to thank you for listening uh, I'm Ben Korb I'm Drew Porter Daniel Pham. Thank you for listening. We will catch you on the next episode that has been Pipe Bets and Politics, and we'll hear from you soon.